0: The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Well, we're in week number two of our new series, Small Verses with Big Impact. Matt kicked off this uh, series last week, did an awesome job. I get to continue it today. When we thought of doing this series, uh, there's a couple different reasons that we did it. One was, it gives us an opportunity as pastors and preachers to speak on verses that don't get preached on very often. So maybe it's a different topic that we haven't got to share on before, or maybe it's just a verse that we've looked at, have been inspired in it, in our journey of faith, and wanted to preach on it, how it influenced us, encouraged us. So it gives us an, an opportunity to do that. Number two, the second reason we chose this is that we hope that all of you get inspired as well to open up your Bibles and be encouraged by God's Word and what He has for you, how He wants to guide and direct you and lead you to these awesome things in your life. So we hope, through the inspiration of small verses that inspired us, you too will find small verses that inspire yourself. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Um, I was inspired to entitle this talk, Expect Adversity. And if I'm honest, you guys probably know this about me. I'm not that smart of a guy. I'm like really average in my brain capacity, really average in my study ability. I was really average in school. And I'm really, I guess, average in the way that I approach God and approach the scriptures. So I'm not going to give you anything that's like brilliant. So I'm not going to outline this amazing, amazing theology. This whole concept of expecting adversity is very average normal. We all know that we face adverse situations in life, but my hope this morning is in my averageness that I at least give you one takeaway that you're able to apply with your walk with God as you face adverse situations in your life. All right. I was inspired to name this talk Expect Adversity due to a book that I've been reading. And I say that confidently, like, look at me, I read books, but I don't really read that many books. My wife reads one book every week. That's a lot of reading. And she blogs about it, so you can go... Where are you? You can go on her blog, read about it, promotion. I read a book maybe every month, if I'm lucky, maybe a month and a half. And the current book that I'm reading is called Thursday Speeches. I read books that are going to benefit my life, that are going to develop my leadership or my understanding of God or church or football in some degree, because I'm a coach. I don't read, like, fictional books about made-up people and made-off lands, and I don't want to get my entertainment from books. I'd rather watch movies because they're way faster and a lot more special effects. <laughs> so if it doesn't benefit me, I probably won't read it. And so this book has benefited me. It's, it's a book about Don James, who, of course, is the dog father, who was the coach of University of Washington, led them to their second national championship in 1991, which happened to be a couple years ago. That was the last time we were relevant. But uh, just a phenomenal coach, phenomenal concepts on leadership and life. And the normal college football work week, if we work backwards, Saturday is game day. Friday is normally your your walkthrough, the last install that you need to do. And Thursday night is where you gather all your players together, and you have like your rah-rah focus speeches. Let's do great things on Saturday. And so this book is a compilation of all of his Thursday speeches, his His notes for his team throughout his career at University of Washington. It's a very very interesting read. Um, But the the, the speech I want to focus on is actually more just his his team theme for the 1976 season. It was his second season at University of Washington, and his theme was to expect adversity. Now, it makes sense because in football, there's an opposing team, right? There's two people. They're both trying to win. So his concept is, because they're trying to win, we need to outprepare them, right? If they lift weights this much, we need to lift more weights. If they prepare this much in the film room and on the field, we need to prepare that much more, right? Do more than your opponent. Expect adversity and respond positively. That's one of the quotes from uh, this pregame speech. I believe it was against Texas that year. They lost, um, but <laughs> he says, "Great teams expect adversity and respond positively." They don't cower in fear because there's an opponent. They don't sit back and think, oh, we're just going to take the defeat because there's someone opposing us. No, they respond positively by doing positive things to prepare themselves for the battle that's about to take place. Another great quote from that speech is respond. This is how they respond. Respond by getting stronger and more determined. Get better. Get better today. Do what you need to do to be stronger against your opponent tomorrow. And this, of course, applies to our walk with God. In our life, there is an opponent. There is evil going on. There is adversity that we face on a daily basis. And it's required of us. What we need to do is to respond positively, not just take the hits, but resp- respond by getting stronger, developing a deeper relationship with Jesus, and more determined, more focused on him working through our problems and our adverse situations. So we're going to talk about th- that today. Cool? Cool. with me? All right. It's a great book, especially if you're a football guy. When was the last time that life hit you in the beanbags, right? Can I say that in church? When was the last time (laughs) life smacked you in the beanbags? Because life has a way of doing that from time to time. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it happens. Jesus actually promised us that we were going to suffer and face uh, adverse situations in our life. And yet how many of us When we're responding to a trial or turmoil, something that's going on, we know that Jesus said that we're supposed to expect adversity, and yet we still question God. We say, why God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Why, why, why? And we begin to doubt him. Why, I believe, is probably the most asked question and the most unanswered question of all time. You especially know this if you have young children, right? You're driving around and like, why, why? 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 You give them the answer, and then it's, why that? Why, why, why? Why is it called a hamburger when it's made out of beef, for instance? Why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the container? Why are they called apartments when we build them all together? Why is it called a building once it's finished? Shouldn't it be called a built? These are life, most unanswered questions here. These are funny whys, obviously. Um, But the real turmoil, the real adverse situations, you know, they're not funny why questions. They're very difficult things that we carry with us for a long time. Why, Why can life be so painful sometimes? Why does it feel like I'm carrying this dark cloud of depression on me no matter where I go, no matter what I do, I can't seem to shake it? Why have my children strayed from the faith or strayed from what I taught them while they were in my home, not that they're out in the world? Why can't we get ahead in our finances? We always seem to be behind and we can't cut a break. Why are my coworkers jerks? Why cancer in my family? Why leukemia? Why Down syndrome? Why fibromyalgia? Why didn't I get that job? I was qualified for it, but I didn't get it. Why am I, why am I still single when everyone around me is getting married? Difficult why questions that we struggle with in our life, and maybe one of the most difficult ones is why didn't we give Marshawn the ball on second down, (laughs) right? Why? Why questions that we struggle with that bring, bring pain into our lives. Life can be troublesome, right? It could be tiring. It could be frustrating, disappointing, and painful, and yet... How many of us, either consciously or unconsciously, did expect that when we became Christians or as Christians, that our life should be easy? It should be easier for us because we're doing the right things and we're loving Jesus along the way. But the truth is that life doesn't work that way. We all wish for life to be trouble-free, but salvation is not accompanied by a trouble exemption certificate. You know, and I know, I know many Christians, friends of mine, that, They've found things happening in their life that they didn't wish to bring upon themselves. They just seemed to happen. Struggling relationships, struggling marriages, sicknesses, sorrow, financial difficulties, unemployment, other anxious or heartbreaking circumstances. None of them sought to bring these things upon themselves. They just kind of happened. It's just one day everything was fine and then this chaos grew around them, or maybe it came out of nowhere. Can you relate? You feel this frustration or maybe regret, this, this pain. Now I, I often see Christians, when they find themselves in those circumstances, it's, they're almost like hazy in the eyes. They're confused on why God would allow this to happen to them. So it, it affects their faith. They let it affect their faith, the way that they worship God. If they continue to go to church, if they continue to worship or serve him or give to him, Maybe they bought into this belief that as a Christian, life should be easy. And so when troubles come, it really shatters their whole world perspective. Their life view is just different now. They think, they ask the question, isn't God supposed to be good? I mean, I read about his goodness in the scripture, but why isn't he blessing me? Why isn't he good to me? I mean, I go to church most of the time and I give, but if he's not going to be there for me, why should I be there for him? And then I see other people, other Christians, when they're in the midst of adversity, they still choose to live well. They still hold on to their faith. They still hold on to their hope and to their joy. In fact, they can even encourage me, even though they're the ones that are supposedly suffering. You guys know these people. Now the Bible speaks to all of this, and I'm saying this morning. And Jesus was the most honest man; is the most honest man who has ever walked the earth, and his teaching, the Bible, is given to us to help us. It's where we find our way through this maze of the human experience, which we call life. So this morning, I want to look at something that Jesus said. It's going to be our small verse with a big impact. We're going to focus on John chapter 16, verse 33. So if you want to pull it up on your app, I encourage you to do that. Or if you're so old, you still have paper Bibles, I guess you could pull those out too. Uh, But to truly understand this verse, uh, I want to contextualize it a little bit. I think it's good to understand what's happening at the time, what's happening around Jesus and his followers, to truly get the weight of what Jesus is saying here, chapter 16, verse 33. John 16 falls toward the end of what scholarly types people much smarter than me call the upper room discourse now the upper room discourse is the time that Jesus met with his closest followers his disciples in that upper room in John chapters 13 through 16 this is where we read about the last supper how they were all sitting on the same side of the table because that worked for some reason and they all posed like this someone snapped a picture of them. But picture this, right? They're all in this upper room together. And I think you can actually go to the upper room today in Israel. They've preserved it. I think they've made it a little bit better. It now has a flat screen TV in it. So they're up in this upper room. and And the time is just a matter of hours before Jesus' impending arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are all gathered around and they're really hanging on listening to Jesus' every word that he speaks. These are some of the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples before his death and probably the the last opportunity to say many things that he wanted to say to his followers and explain exactly what will happen and what should happen in the days to come. So Jesus clearly seeks to prepare his disciples, his followers, for the tough road that they're about to experience. Jesus begins chapter 16 by explaining why he took time to call them together in this upper room and to teach them. Verse 1 says, All of this I have told you so that you will not go astray. He wanted them to stay together. He wanted them to stay strong in their faith in the facing of adversity. He didn't want them to wander off, wander to other things, withdraw from God, but stay true to God. Jesus explains that in a little while he will go away for a time, but then he will come back. And I think the disciples were like me. They were just, they were average minded people. And it took them a while to understand what Jesus was truly saying is that he was going to die. He was going to suffer this tremendous, horrible death. And when they realized it, it really hit them hard. Even though Jesus was the one that was about to die, he took the time to comfort his disciples. He was comforting them in the midst of his own adversity. This is what he says in. 20 through 22. Then fix this firmly in your minds. You're going to be in deep mourning while the godless world throws a party. You'll be sad, very sad, but your sadness will develop into gladness. Like when a woman gives birth, she has a hard time. There's no getting around it. But when the baby is born, there is joy in the birth. This new life in the world wipes out memory of pain. And the immediate, the disciples were going to experience this Terrible, overwhelming pain, grief, sadness at the loss of their friend, at the loss of their leader. Many of you know that experience. This is pain. But Jesus said, it'll get worse before it gets better. It'll be harder. The godless world around you will throw a party and celebrate and think that they're doing life the right way by killing me. But obviously, it's not that way. This is also prophetic to us in explaining what the last days will be like before Jesus' return once again. Godless world throws a party around us. It's difficult to deal with sometimes. So here we are. It's kind of the backstory. It leads us into the verse for today, verse 33. And believe it or not, this is a promise. This is an interesting promise, but this is a promise that Jesus gives us. Have I built it up enough? Are you ready for it? Okay. Verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You've heard this before, right? It's one of those verses. It's not like mind-shattering because we experience adversity on a daily basis. But there's such good things. It's maybe not the most uh, standout promise that is listed in the Scripture, but nevertheless it holds so much importance to us. Jesus knew the disciples, the closest to him, we're we're going to suffer some great trials in the days and the time ahead. Except for Peter and John, we lose track of Jesus' disciples after the gospel accounts. But when we look at ancient traditions and ancient uh, writings, we see that most of the disciples continued to spread the good news of Jesus, and most of them paid for it with their lives, like Jesus'. James, son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod and was the first martyred. John, who of course wrote this gospel that we're reading from, was exiled because of his faith and died of natural causes. Philip, Thomas, and Bartholomew were all martyred. We know that Peter was crucified upside down during Nero's persecution and Andrew was crucified in Achaia. Jesus knew this. The night that he was meeting with his disciples that they would Face these trials, face these persecutions, and ultimately these deaths because of their faith. And so he comforted him that night. And Jesus also wants to comfort us today using this scripture. And so I want to pack this, kind of take it line by line, and look at three things that we could take hearts and understand this morning. So the first is that Jesus promises peace to us. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Look at that first phrase. I have told you these things. And sometimes we can read through it quickly, but we sit back and realize Jesus said a lot of things. (laughs) Jesus told us a lot of things. Jesus told his disciples many things in the upper room that night. He says a lot of things. God tells us a lot of things through his scripture. He gives us great advice through the Bible. And he has some great advice waiting for each and every one of us when we're willing to open it up and look at it and read it. We can open it and find encouragement and guidance. Open it in the midst of problems and personal tragedy and see what God has for you in that time of your life. Because no matter what you are facing, what you need, God has available to you. Jesus never hid the truth from his followers. The Bible says that he is truth personified. He never painted a picture of discipleship that was only attractive without also displaying the cost of what it takes to be a follower of him. And he says here that his honesty has one aim. The reason he's honest in all of this, talking about suffering and persecution and adversity, that in him we may have this peace. He tells it as it is. One of the great things about Jesus Peace is only available in Him and through Him. And as we live in this meaningful, consistent relationship with God, peace is also available to you and I. It's available to us. And peace is necessary in life because of adversity. Because adversity exists. A promise of peace is an equal promise of adversity in this life, even as Christians All this adds up to tell us that peace is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ in our troubles. You can never truly experience peace until you experience turmoil, pain, loss, adversity, and have learned to turn to God in the midst of it all. Jesus explained what it's really like to be one of his followers, to be one of his disciples. There's going to be trouble but unfortunately, some, so many times, we don't experience that peace because we choose to close ourselves off to God in the midst of that adversity. You guys remember those expanding sphere toys? I never had them. My cool friends had them, but there, there's a picture of it. You guys remember these things? I was told that Michael Scott on The Office has one of these sitting on his desk. Thank you, Whitney. She told me that this morning. So, this is the gist of the toy, right it 's all collapsed it 's so tight and closed that you couldn 't get air or anything through it, and just sits in the box all cramped up. Then you grab opposite ends, right it 's all small, and you pull it and it gets ginormous, and you 're like, "Whoa," and then you close it, then you open it and you're like, "Whoa," and then you throw it underneath your bed and you never look at it anymore because it 's kind of boring after you like your mind's blown a few times. Well, this follow me guys. this is kind of a Christian's heart sometimes in the face of adversity. Sometimes when troubles come, problems come, trials come, instead of turning to God, we get so introspective, we get so focused on us, us alone, on our problem, that we turn our back on God. We maybe even blame God. We ask God, why, why, why? And there's no opportunity in our heart, no ability for him to send his love, his joy, his freedom, his hope into us because we're closed off and we turn our back to him it's only when we open ourselves up, we expand our perspective, that those holes in our heart begin to open up. And it gives God the opportunity to flow in us and flow through us to give us that hope, that love, and that peace that Jesus promises here. That made sense, right? Second, Jesus promises trouble. He says, In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus never used words carelessly. What he said. He always considered. He never had to retract a statement because it came out wrong or he said it in a wrong way that was offensive. Now, I wish I had that ability sometimes because I'm always saying things that I hope I could grab out of the air and stuff back into my mouth and stuff my foot in my mouth at the same time. I usually do that weekly or daily or hourly. But that never happened with Jesus. He never had to apologize for words that he had said that he did not mean to say. Jesus understood the power of what he said. John chapter 1, verse 1 is such a great verse for us because it says, Jesus is the word of God. So every word that he spoke, he knew had to be truth because he knew for years and years people would build their life on it as truth. Jesus understood that. So when he said, you will have trouble, what do you think it means? pretty literal, right? That we're going to have trouble in this life. So when you hear that preacher on TV say that God wants you to have a trouble-free life as long as you send me $200, right? You can know two things. The the guy has a semi-functioning brain and he has a closed Bible because that's not the case. Jesus said we would face adversity. None of us have any reason to doubt or question the words of Jesus because he is truth he speaks truth it's one and the same what he said he had a reason to say and wanted it to be remembered now that's great right we can think great Jesus is a speaker of truth but it doesn't necessarily encourage us or comfort us when we isolate this verse here saying that we're going to have trouble yay let's all rejoice in our trouble that we're going to have together And I argue that Jesus didn't say this phrase here, didn't include this in the Bible, to give us an excuse to just sit and be sad in the troubles that we face, an excuse for dwelling in our troubles and adversity and not doing anything about it. But we'll see more about that later. Let's talk about trouble for a second. I think there's two different types of troubles that we can experience as disciples of Jesus, as Christ followers. The first type of trouble that we experience is trouble that's not unique. This is adversity that everyone faces in the world because we are broken people living with other broken people in a broken world where sin exists. Trouble will happen in that formula. We as Christians, just because we love Jesus and we go to church, are not exempt from that fact. It is a working formula at all times. We may go through difficult troubles and similar troubles as our non-Christian friends, family members, co-workers. But the question shouldn't be, why are we experiencing that trouble? But rather, it should be, how are we experiencing that trouble? Now, Pastor John talked all about that. He did an awesome job a couple weeks ago, closing off the Christo series, a talk called Crown of Christ and Others, So I'm not going to go deep into that. That's probably about all I'm going to say. But if you want to hear that talk, I encourage you to go on the podcast because it's a really, 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 really good one. But how do we respond? How do we act and talk when we face a trial with our Christian friends, with our non-Christian friends, with our kids? Do our actions and reactions glorify God in the midst of the trial or does it do just the opposite? Great evangelist Charles Spurgeon said, I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health with the exception of sickness. This is (laughs) a phenomenal perspective. But it's in those midst of trials and adversity that we can draw closer to God. It actually grows our faith, and it gives us opportunities to speak life into our non-Christian friends and family members. So trouble that is not unique The second trouble, of course, because you're all geniuses, you figured it out, is trouble that is unique. This is adversity we experience because we love Jesus, we want to follow Jesus, and we want other people to know who Jesus is in this world around us. Get this, these are actual troubles that we should expect to experience as followers of Christ because we're different from people in this world. The Bible calls us aliens, in this world, we're unlike everyone else. We have different values that seem so countercultural to most people, and this unique uh, trouble that we experience can be prompted by the evil one, Satan. It can be prompted by humanity. It can be prompted by just the s- society and what society says that we should value. But we're encouraged, actually, to rejoice in this type of suffering because we're suffering for Jesus' name, for his mission in this world. Now, I'm not advocating that we force ourselves into adverse situations just so we can say we're celebrating for the name of Christ. So I'm not telling anyone in this room to be idiots, okay? Don't, like, run up to people in the street corner and try to argue them into a relationship with Jesus. And then when they don't accept your invitation... You tell them that they're going to go to hell and then they punch you in the face and then you think, yeah, suffering for the sake of Christ. It's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay? But maybe, maybe you feel this intense pressure or you feel guilty because of a situation around you involving non-Christian people because you won't conform to the norm of this world because it's against your Christian values. And maybe you're heckled or talked down to you in your circle of friends or your co-workers or maybe even it's a significant other that's not a Christian. Let me encourage you that it's not necessarily because you're being a bad Christian or a horrible Christian. It could be quite the opposite. That You're actually doing the right thing, standing up for Christ, living a moral life, standing up for his values. So if we understand this, that we're to expect trouble, we're supposed to expect adversity. Does that also mean we're to accept adversity? That we should just lay back and endure it, take the hits through life, and wait to be sainted as a modern-day martyr? I was like, that's all. That's all it is for me. No, of course not. Because the verse goes on. And lastly, Jesus promised victory. He says, But take heart. I have overcome the world. One of the great truths and overall themes of the New Testament, as we read through it, is this triumphing over adversity. These words of Jesus aim to remind us of a very, very important truth in the Christian faith, is that we are not able to triumph on our own. We can't do anything on our own to achieve the victory, because it is in him, it is in Jesus. He is able to triumph. We need to realize that when we're powerless, to quit relying on our own knowledge our own strength, our own emotional fortitude and turn to God in the midst of it. Turn to his word. See what he has for you that day in that struggle. Life will forever be troublesome and stressful and difficult as long as we're trying to make it all work on our own, by ourselves, which is why humanity got itself into this mess to begin with and which is why we need a savior and Jesus. Jesus tells us that the victory he was about to achieve was not for him, but was for each and every one of us, for you and I, and it will continue to be for us. He didn't come to earth because he was so bored of heaven, right? So bored up there that he wanted to take a vacation to earth. He came to earth for you and I, suffered, went through adversity, the struggles, the trials, the persecution, the death, for us everything he did here everything he said was for us and the cross was a victory achieved for us for all time the greatest defeat we could ever experience is to allow the difficulties we are having take our focus off god to get so introspective turn to ourselves, turn our back to god Yet the greatest victory we can experience is when we refuse to allow whatever is happening in us and around us at the time to remove our focus from walking with God. Two truths to remember when we need a victory. Don't you love when like a pastor has like nine points in his last point? It's totally cheating. I know you guys all need to go home and watch the Mariners lose again. Sorry, Whitney. Um, two truths that we need to remember when we need a victory. First is it's not always our fault. There are times when we are powerless to change the situation. Remember, we're broken people. We're living with broken people in a broken world. It's going to happen. Oftentimes, we can be victims of circumstances that we couldn't change no matter what we did. So it doesn't help if we continue to live in this self-doubt, self-pity, self-blame. But just because we're facing a trial or an adverse situation that isn't our fault doesn't mean there's not something that we might be able to do about it, something that might help. Maybe there's something that I know that I can do to change what is happening, to expand my perspective, and to bring God into the middle of it and experience His peace. So it's not always our fault. Secondly, it is always our faith. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Everyone who is a child of God has won the battle over the world. Our faith has won the battle for us. So let me ask you this morning, what is your faith level at? If you rated yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, how strong, how focused is your relationship with God this morning? How confident are you today that God wants to lead you through your difficult and troublesome circumstances and experiences that you brought into this room with you this morning? The tragedy is that so many of us, Christian or non-Christian, we get so focused on the negativity of the circumstance around us that we forget that God wants us to be free, desires us to be free from the past, free from the pain, free from the problem. But it takes building that faith, developing that relationship with God to see he wants us to be free and experience that peace. Jesus tells us to expect adversity, but he also tells us to expect God to lead us through it. So as I begin to wrap up and close, I want to hit you with a couple more scriptures. There's some more of my favorite scriptures that I couldn't figure out a place to work them into the talk. So I just, again, threw them right there on the end. Just going to keep talking. So uh, one of my favorite verses of all time is in Romans chapter 8. Let me read it to you. Do you think anyone is able or going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demon, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. It's not motivational hype. I'm not preparing you to, you know, play a game against Texas. This is spiritual truth. This is Jesus' love for us in the scripture. One more. I promise. Well, maybe not promise. promise. One more. 2 Corinthians two fourteen through 16. Just listen to the imagery here. It's awesome. In the Messiah in Christ Jesus, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Isn't that rad? When we put God in the right place in our life, out in front of us, letting him lead us through trials, difficult struggles, it's like a victory parade. He's leading us in and out of relationships and to people and places, I picture it like there's God in front, there's me going college football, and there's like a marching band behind playing Louie Louie because I always play that. There's like confetti coming down and fully clothed cheerleaders, and we're just like, yeah, God is awesome. God is so good and faithful to lead us through difficult situations. Through us, he brings knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. People breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give us a, a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way to salvation. So cool. Hopefully that encourages you today. I want to end with a story that I led off with, going back to the upper room. What Jesus did immediately after sharing this, that we're going to face trouble, we're going to expect adversity in his life. Next thing tells us so much about God's heart for us. God's love for us, compassion for us, especially in the midst of trial and adversity. 17 verse 1, very next verse. After Jesus said this, said all these things, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And we, when we examine this prayer, we see that most of it is directed toward you and I. He prays for us, for us to have victory. He prays for our protection, for our joy, for peace, for holiness. Now, Jesus, more than anyone, knew what it was like the testing of faith in adverse situation. And so what he does, what he did, he prayed for each and every one of us. So I think that's a great place to end. And I also want to pray for you this morning. Would you join with me?